hang out with Dan. All right. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's good to be together worshiping God. It's good to be in his presence. Um, and it's good to have the privilege to preach God's word to you this morning. I'm going to talk a little bit. Obviously, I'm going to talk about the text. I'm going to introdu- introduce the text a little bit in a moment. But um, I'm told you, you all here, you, you follow like the liturgical calendar, right? Yeah. So we're in the season of ordinary time. Um, ordinary time is not like a boring time. Um, it's a strange name for a season. Uh, but ordinary time is this, is this time in the church calendar uh, where we seek in our life together to take the story of the God, like the whole story of the gospel, instead of concentrating on one point in Jesus's life, but we take the whole story of the gospel and we try to work it into all the kind of nooks and crannies of our life to explore together how the, uh, as, they, as the theologians say, the Lordship of Christ informs all of our lives, uh, our lives at work, at home, with one another, all these kinds of things. And one of the ways that you guys are doing that this summer, I'm told, is you're spending some time in the book of Revelation, that famous book. Uh, that book that is both, uh, it's the source of so much confusion and error. Maybe you've been a victim of this kind of thing. I think maybe we all have. Um, uh, and it's a book about the, the end to which all things in this life go. Uh, the final goal or destination of the work of God in this world. And if you're daunted by this book, it probably means that you're taking it appropriately seriously. Um, It is intense. You'll see that with this text this week. It's intense. It's strange. It's imagistic. It's like poetic. Uh, But when it's taken for what it is, it is a peeling back of the veil that kind of hides the fullness of what God is up to in this world. And it's a story or a, a it's a vision that is told in, in pictures, uh, and it's a powerful encounter with the reality of God. The whole book is. Now, our text in particular is printed in part uh, in your bulletin, but uh, I'm actually going to read from and preach from the entire section, uh, which is more than just chapter six. It would have taken up too many pages in your bulletin. Um, but what it is, is it recounts what John sees in the throne room of God. Okay, so chapters four and five. John is caught up in this vision uh, into heaven and he sees um, all, he sees the worship that is being offered to God now and will be offered forever more. Um, but, he, but he also sees this scroll and he, he begins to weep because he cannot open the scroll and, and this lamb, the slain lamb, who is Jesus, comes to open the scroll. And this scroll is the, it, it's, again, it's an image and it's the scroll that contains the will of God. And the end to which all things are directed. And that's why John is desperate for this scroll to be opened. And after much weeping and much uncertainty that anyone would ever be able to open it, John sees that the lamb, looking as if he was slain, as he says, arrives to do just that. And the opening of these seals, as you see, that when the seals are opened, the seals themselves begin to speak. So we don't actually read the contents of the scroll here. We, we hear the seals themselves speaking to us. Some Harry Potter stuff, if you've ever. <laughs> now, I just want to say, uh, Dan has probably gotten to this in your series so far. The revelation is strange. It's apt to misuse. People try in vain to predict the future from it. Don't do that. Uh, and this text in particular is right for misuse for American Christians. To justify the mistakes we've made in our own thirst for power and comfort. And it's not about that either. 
But it is, and I want you to see this, a word from God, which recalls us to that, which we are prone to forget. And that is this, that God is beyond us. He's infinitely strange. He's other. And in, in, in this book, even this text, you, we see that God is holy, not holy as in pure, but completely other. He is wild and he will not be domesticated by anyone. And as his creatures come to him, we are his creatures. And as we are uh, in this place together, we are coming him to him this morning to listen and to try to understand more about him. And this is what John sees in the throne room of God. It's a kind of a long reading, so get ready. And also this, one of my professors in seminary this is probably the best advice I ever got about understanding revelation. Sometimes it's good to just hear it, listen to it with your eyes closed. If you can do that without falling asleep, do that. <laughs> revelation chapter six. The eye here is John. It says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and look. And, and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and look. And I looked and behold a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers or brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I look. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for great, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. After this, I saw four angels and this is not printed. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants 
of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And I'll skip the 12,000s, every tribe. Whoa, you guys, my Bible just fell. <laughs> my daughter's got a hold of my Bible and they ripped. Hang on one second. We were writing the good stuff. Cut the tension there with the falling Bible. All right, we're back in it. Come back with me. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the Lamb opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came, came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, which is something that contains incense. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come to you this morning on this ordinary morning a beautiful summer morning in Wisconsin, and we pray that we would encounter you in this place. Um, We pray that you would hear us, that you would hear our songs and our prayers, um, our cries to you, and we pray that you would speak to us um, by your word and by the preaching of your word and by your sacraments. And we pray that with all these things, you would form us into better lovers of you and of our neighbor. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, that was a long reading, but it's a powerful reading. Have any of you guys seen the movie, The Tree of Life? You should see it. But before you see it, you should realize that it is a movie that is attempting to take the medium of poetry and put it onto film. And so it's like totally kind of wacky. And there are some like essays that you should read that explain kind of what the movie is about before you see it. But The Tree of Life, uh, it's been called by a lot of people the greatest film ever made. It's very weird. It's very weird, but it's very good. Um, 
And it's, it's been called, there's actually a theologian who wrote an entire book about the theology of the movie, The, the Tree of Life. Um, it's been called Visual Poetry. And, and basically it's about, it's a story about a boy, well, about a man reckoning with the death of his younger brother and his relationship with his father. That's what it's about. It's very simple. But the way that it's told is in flashbacks and fits and starts and then kind of fantastic imagery. There's a 30 minute scene where you see the creation of the universe. Totally crazy. But in one scene, um, you, you see this, the father who's played by Brad Pitt. The father is, um, he's a man who is proud and he's arrogant and he's tempted to violence and he loses his job. That's, that's what's implied. He loses his job. But they, they attend, a, I think it's like an Episcopal church faithfully in rural Texas. He loses his job and he, they, you see the scene in church and the little boy is kind of sitting next to the father and he's looking up at him and you, you see him wrestling with God and he's saying, Things like, I, I, I went to church every week. I tithed every week. How, how could this happen? And in the background, and you can, you can barely hear it, but in the background, you hear the preacher or the priest uh, preaching his sermon. And you hear this one line and he says, you hear kind of the middle of the sentence. And he says, is there some fraud built into the scheme of this universe? Is there some fraud in the scheme of this universe? And maybe you've asked this question your own way. Is there some fraud in the way that this world operates? I actually, I'm sure you have because this room's filled with people. And if you haven't, you will. But, but that question of, of the fraudulent character of the universe, is the universe fair? Uh, is the question to which this opening of the seals, this, this long reading that we just went through, it is the answer to that question. These seals speak to us and they, they tell us that God is active in the world uh, in, in a righteous way, but in a way that is beyond us. So first, there's this question that is hanging over the people of God and, and that is answered by these scrolls. And the question is something like what we hear in the Psalms. Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why does the world seem so off balance and where is God in all of it? That's the question that God speaks to in this section. It's a question that was in the minds of early Christians, right? Uh, the, these Christians who were, who were living under the threat of Roman persecution, uh, they probably already lived through some of it uh, in the steady knocking off of all the apostles. They were all dying. And it was not just them. This, this kind of, this question, why are the wicked prospering? Lord, why are you not protecting us? This is a question that uh, was, as I said, a common refrain in the Psalms, and it was present in Jesus' own day. And so why does it seem that there is no oppression, there is no end to oppression and injustice in this world or conflict? Now, the, the text uh, is not an answer to the, the question of the, like, the problem of evil, um, the problem of how uh, it's possible that an all-powerful and all-good God could allow even evil in this world. That is a kind of an unanswerable question, and it's not going to be answered by this text. But it is an assurance. This is the important thing. It is an assurance that the instruments of evil are directed towards an end. They are not their own and do not have free reign. And because of that, all of the faithful have nothing to fear even if they don't understand what's going around them, what's going on around them, they have nothing to fear. Now this text requires a lot of explaining and what we're going to do is kind of walk through it and try to understand the images and see what it means for us. We're going to take note of what's being shown and then put it together. So first you've got, you've got kind of two movements. 
there are seven seals, and you've kind of got the first five seals together, and then the last two seals together. So the first thing, you, you've got these four, the first four seals are these four horses that kind of come riding out like a Patronus. Any Harry Potter? Anybody? Um, that's the last Harry Potter reference. Um, <laughs> these horses, they come riding out when the seals are broken. And then you've got this section for the martyrs and injustice. But here's what we see in verses uh, 1 through 11. The lamb begins his work of opening the seals, the first four of which speak. They say, come. And behold, a horse and a rider come out. The first one is white with a bow, and he's coming out to conquer. The second one is red with a sword, and he's coming out to take peace away. The third one is, is uh, what color is it? Black? I can't remember. But he comes out proclaiming essentially what was like 800% inflation, economic uh, catastrophe, famine. And then the fourth one comes out and he's ashen or pale. That the, the color that is implied by the Greek there is like green or like decaying flesh. That's the image that you should see. It's like a horse and a rider who are dead, like zombies or something. And that fourth horse is the, is the kind of culmination of the first three. Like he is what the first three horses bring. It's death, death and suffering. And then finally, the fifth seal opens in verse nine. And from it, another voice cried, and it is the voice of the martyrs. All of those who had been slain for the word of God and, and for the witness they had borne is what the text says. And each of them are given a white robe, and then they are told to wait. But know what they're told to wait for. They're told to wait not because necessarily because God is, you know, the gospel hasn't uh, reached where it's going to go, which is another reason why we kind of wait for Christ to return. But he says you need to wait for all of your fellow servants and brothers and sisters to join you as martyrs. Now, what in the world is happening? Here's what's happening. The scroll, remember, this is the scroll of the will of God. As it is being opened by the Lamb of God who is slain and raised, which contains the covenant of God to which he has bound himself, is itself declaring that the world in which the wicked triumph and the faithful suffer and are even slain will be judged by God. And the judgment of God is impartial and it is pure. This is the undomesticated God who will not be mocked. And he hears the cries of the martyrs. Now I want you to notice two things. First thing is this. Notice what these riders are bringing. The, 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 they're bringing destructive consequences, yes, uh, but these things are the very things that men and women throughout history want. The things that they do. We wage war against one another for the purposes of power and plunder to conquer. This is what we do. We take vengeance and take away peace. We use the earth, we don't protect it, we use it up. You cannot read history and deny that this is how the, this is how the world that you woke up in operates. It's true of our own country. It's true of other nations. It's true of ourselves. That at our worst, we do not want peace. We want power. We want pleasure. We want abundance for ourselves. And what we see with these four horses is that that combination always brings death. If not physical death, it's the death of relationships, of trust, of faith. That's the first thing. Second thing is this, that these are the very things God appears to be telling us in this text. These are the very things that God is using to thwart the purposes of the wicked in the world. These things that bring no resolution, but only disarray, no completion. 
And the painful irony that we see in this text that we should feel in this text is that humans, we humans actually are proving to be our own undoing. As we turn against God, we turn against ourselves. Death is the undeniable consequence of unbridled conquest, interpersonal violence, and greed. That's what these horses are telling us. And yet, the martyrs must wait for justice because there is more martyrdom coming. All those who are destined for this end will be joining their brothers and sisters at the altar. Now, to get to the scrolls answering to the suffering of the martyrs, right? You've got, you've got these horses kind of riding through, being, bringing destruction. And then you've got the martyrs crying out to God, asking him for justice. To get at the answer that the, the, to suffering that, the, that, the, that God is going to bring, this question of God making good on his promise to judge rightly the actions of men and women, and this question of whether or not there's any justice to be had, the question is kind of like this. It's the, the martyrs are asking, were we mistaken? Will God be with us till the end of the age? That's what you said. Will the church be vindicated or is the church foolish? Now we're not going to look at it in detail, but verses uh, from verses chapter six, verse 11 through eight, five, it says essentially this. There's a lot more that can be said about this, but we don't have all day. The day of the Lord's judgment will come. It will come. And only those sealed by God will rejoice. That 144,000 is, is re- with reference to the, the church that is living. The old theologians even called it the church militant. We don't, our weapons are not the same as the armies of this world, but it is called the church militant, right? And then you've got the multitudes who are dead and who will come after the, the living church. But the, only those sealed by God will rejoice when the day of the Lord's judgment comes. Those who think of themselves as powerful, Apart from God, those who, who, who have no need of God, they will cower, we see, and they will beg to be destroyed. They will beg for the, for the mountains, for rocks to fall on them rather than facing the righteous, judgment, the righteous judgment of God. That's what this text is telling us. And in the throne room of God, remember, this is answering the question of the meaning of their suffering. In the throne room of God, the prayers of the faithful, chapter eight, they are the prayers of the faithful and the martyrs. They are reaching God. So if you are here and you are suffering and you're praying to God, those prayers are reaching God. They are coming up like incense. You ever been in a, in a church service with incense, right? The guy comes through and he swings the little censer and the smoke fills the room. That's the image that is given here in chapter eight. These prayers are reaching into the throne room of God and he will respond with fire, with pure judgment. And if you are not sealed by God, it will be unbearable. That's the picture that is given here to John. Now, this is a heavy text. It deals with the kinds of things that I would rather not preach about, honestly. Kind of things I kind of tremble to speak of and long to soften. I want to soften this for you guys. I want to. Because it is also apocalyptic. (laughs) It feels unreal. But I want to say it again. And I want you to leave this 
church understanding today that God, with all of our theology and our liturgy and our songs and our hymns and our explorations and our, of, of who God is and our devotion books and all these kinds of things, they're all great, but God will not be domesticated. And we must take his word and this word seriously. It was a profound word to Christians living under the power of the Roman Empire, and it's a profound word to the church today. And there are a few things we can take from it, I think. The first thing is this. This text is primarily about the challenge that martyrdom presents the church. Because of that, it is not, it is not, text to be used to vindicate American Christians who in their adoption of a mentality of victimhood as the culture around us, around us changes and the challenges that are real that we face in our moment. No one is killing us. And most of the disdain that we face, maybe not on a personal level for people in here, but most of the disdain that we face from the culture that doesn't understand us is because of our own failures to embody the life of Jesus. Among our neighbors, there's a a poll that came out recently that said Christians are most known by those outside of the community for their judgmental attitudes towards people outside of their communities. So most of the disdain that we face is, is a disdain that is because of our own failures to embody the life of Jesus. So this text is not for a justification of our own kind of victimhood mentality as our church loses the facade. It was never true. The facade of like a Christian nation. But it is a text to assure our brothers and sisters in China that God is not asleep at the wheel. As their churches are shut down and their pastors are imprisoned and killed. Okay. This is a text that is speaking to them. It's not a call to arms for the American church. It is a call to the American church in many ways to repent. In its own greed and thirst for power. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that God is the sovereign judge of the world that he has made. This is his right as a creator. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is an interesting Sunday for you to come. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, and this is sincere, and, and I have my, I, this is a, this whole text is, is, a, is a frustrating and, and, and difficult thing for me to even get my own head around. But I, this is a sincere begging from me to hear God calling you to faith now. It will be the only shield when the righteous judgment of God is poured out on the sins of this world. Now, this is not really the reason that I became a Christian. It's not the only reason to become a Christian. A lot of people experience church as it's like this emotional manipulation of people call it fire insurance, right? Like you don't want to burn in hell, so you should become a Christian. It's not the only reason you should become a Christian. It is a reason to become a Christian. And I'm not trying to scare you into faith. That doesn't usually work or last. But I do not wish this judgment on you. And so I urge you to seek Christ while he may be found. Because he tells us that he is not far from any one of us. Thirdly, and finally, it's this. Um, is there a fraud in the scheme of this universe? Yes. But it is not God. It is us. In our own thirst for power, 
our own wishes to be like God, to, just, to, to reject our creaturely character, our creaturely status before God, we destroy peace. We bring violence upon others personally and culturally, even to the very earth. We are the fraud in this universe. But the Christian story, as you'll see, if you stick around here, if you continue to uh, listen to the pastors here preach through the book of Revelation, it doesn't end with this kind of apocalyptic vision. It ends with something very different. The Christian story is a story of God who would be within his rights to destroy us now. Right now. But it's a story of that God becoming one of us and of dying and of rising in perfection and of purifying us from sin and uniting us back to God. There's a story of God overcoming death, the death that we have wrought in this world. It's the story of God who will hold our faces in his hands in the last day and he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. And it's a story of of giving life together with him forevermore. That's the story. The story that, that Christians take to be the true story of the world. And it includes judgment, yes. But not only judgment, but peace, reconciliation, restoration, and life forevermore with God. And so as we wrestle with this text and the reality of God's judgment, and as we lean into the hope that is given to us in Christ, let us, as we come to this table, that is a promise and a guarantee that this world is not destined for ruin, but for glory. Let us join the song of the heavenly host and say, holy, holy, holy. Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us and for this alarming, in many ways, vision to the Apostle John. But we pray that you are not blind to the injustices of this world, that you will judge the world with perfect judgment. And that is what we really want. But we also thank you for the fact that you have saved us from this judgment in your son. And we pray that you would keep us in faith as we journey in this life and you would bring many in this place to faith in you, to seal us in faith, to seal us for life forever with you. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.